The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Thursday, July 19th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I don't know if you're like me, but I like to listen to my local public radio station to stay connected to trends in hip hop. It is my source for hip hop news whereas The Source is my gateway into municipal infrastructure initiatives. So in WNYC, and I used to work there, still close to my heart, though a lot of people that I worked with and for were let go, definitely not for harassment. An internal investigation conducted by a law firm with the station as a client has found... But anyway, on WNYC, there was this report today. Rapper Cardi B recently welcomed her new baby to the world, and her name is Culture, with a K. And it's just the latest in a trend of unisex names in the United States in the last few years. No, no, it's not. It is not part of that trend. It is part of this trend, which is the trend of celebrities, especially musicians, tagging their kids with crazy-ass names. Blue Ivy, Northwest, T.I.'s daughter is named Eris Harris. Let's play Name That Geldof. Musician Bob Geldof and his wife, Paula Yates, have three daughters. I will intersperse their names with the names of my little pony characters. Tell me who's a Geldof and who's a pony. Here we go. Twilight Sparkle, Fifi Trixie Bell, Peaches Honey Blossom, Apple Blossom, Little Pixie. All right, hold the podcast upside down and you will see at the bottom the answers. All right, Little Pixie. Talk about giving a girl body issues or maybe giving a pony pony issues. I'm not divulging who's the pony and who's the Geldof. A couple of the Geldof girls are very well known. And there was his adopted daughter because uh, Paula Yates, who had a child with uh, Michael Hutchins of Excess, And that child recently turned 21 and was set to uh, uh, inherit Michael Hutchins' fortune. Her name, Heavenly Harani Tiger Lily Hutchins. <laughs> <laughs> Former Spice Girl Jerry Hallowell's daughter is Bluebell Madonna. Bluebell Madonna. Just like her mom, that is a name that is not fit for a baby and is neither sporty nor posh. Now, it may sound like I am denigrating these names, having sport with them. Well, I am making the jokes. My favorite thing is making the jokes. But I actually like all these names except Eris Harris. That seems like a burden, also a dad brag. But if you're Cardi B, what are you going to do? Go out and name your daughter Hortense? I wanted to name my first son Kennesaw Mountain. I wound up coming to my senses and naming him Bowie Kuhn, but as those baseball executives might say, swing big. I am a Mike. And they say the name is Destiny, and I guess it is, but... You know, a mic is kind of the least interesting thing to be in the 70s. Now, I had a friend, and his name was Mort. Morton. We called him Morty. Just to be clear, this wasn't in the shtetl in the 1930s. This was Long Island in the 1980s. But the thing about Mordo, Sporto, fun guy, everyone loves saying Morte. He now goes by the name Cock. I'm not kidding about that. But I choose to think that. The new name is not so much a twisted reaction to years of abuse at being called Morty, but more a confident affirmation of self. And culture, back to Cardi B, culture is a fine name. 
I mean, it could have been sample or specimen. Specimen with a Q, though. I will now give you, because I like you, my just listeners, I'll give you a list of possible names if you're a rapper or if you're just bold, if you just want to swing big. I, I'm not kidding. I think these would all be good names, depending on your last name and, you know, where, do you, where you want to take this thing. Here we go. Munificent. Taxonomist. Prolix. Vulpine. Code. Hacker. And Quandry. And by the way, that is Quandry with a Q, not with a K. Please. On the show today, I spiel about another name in the news, John, a Papa John. But first, when journalist and Montanan Kim Reed began hearing stories of how big money was affecting politics in her state, she found it hard to believe. Montana. In Montana, a state representative serves fewer than 10,000 constituents. But yes, Big donors were pouring money into Montana, corporate money, out-of-state money, untraceable money, or, as is the name of the documentary, dark money. The Citizens United ruling made it so that you could donate just about anything you wanted to a political cause and never have to reveal who you were. Anyone could just donate anything they want and advertise during a campaign. Now, when Citizens United became the law of the land, it actually became the law of almost all the land because there was one state that objected, and that state was Montana. They wanted to have their own disclosure laws. And there's a reason for this. Montana, 100 years ago, the state government was essentially bought by the copper interests, the copper kings. And for a long time, that state in the upper Midwest said, we need to know who is donating to our campaigns. It is the subject of a documentary named Dark Money. The documentarian is Kim Reed. She's with me here. Hello, Kim. Hi. How are you doing? Good. And the star of the documentary, I'm going to call him the star, one of the stars, the person who orients us because he was a reporter on the ground during this whole thing is John Adams. He's with me too. Hello, John. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. So, Kim, your documentary lays it out very clearly, and we start off with establishing shots, and there are geese, and there's a history lesson. I don't want to do that here. I want to pretend it's a feature film, Interior Meth House Colorado. Some cops break down the door. They scoop up uh, files. Tell me what they find in this meth house and why it's important to our story. There was a box full of files that I think to most people would be just a really mysterious, what the what the hell is this? Especially in a meth house. Especially <laughs> in a meth house. They Nasty were, political ads. Well, they, yeah, there were de- definitely tons of, of political ads. Yeah. There was also a lot of the kind of arcania that goes into what you need to do to run a day-to-day political mm-hmm. campaign. Mailers and flyers and often, you know, lies comparing candidates to John Wayne Gacy, which was part of this campaign, but... If used in the uh, uh, service of trying to get someone elected, these campaign materials found in a meth house, which were then given to a politician, could in fact constitute a pretty effective political campaign. Absolutely. And there's like uh, one of the most important things when you run a political campaign is all of that intelligence. They have these things called walk lists where a candidate will have a list of what each voter on each door you knock at, mm-hmm. what they're going to be interested in. If you have that intelligence and you know that this voter is interested in the Second Amendment, and this one doesn't care about the Second Amendment, but is really into 
you know, right to life stuff. Yeah. Then you then you talk to them about that. And that is the really expensive voter information. It's valuable. It's expensive. Through micro-targeting campaigns spend a ton of money to find out who subscribes to the gun magazine in this house and who is more into donates to Catholic charities and is into abortion in that house. And yeah. all of that was before Facebook, before this kind of online digital micro-targeting that, that is going on so much these days. And it was about a campaign that was run when? I think those documents go back to 2008. Yeah. And around that time, what was the state of play with um, Disclosure and Citizens United and campaign financing in Montana? Well, these candidates who were hiring this company to engage in this kind of political activity— That in and of itself would not have been illegal had, A, the candidates themselves hired this company rather than what appears to be the other way around, Mm -hmm. where these groups, these 501c4 groups actually recruited the candidates. National groups that are aligned with either the Koch brothers or wealthy industrialists or people who want to just deregulate go out and shop for candidates, essentially. Corporation funnels money to a dark money group. They send out postcards attacking the opponent. When that candidate gets elected, they support the agenda of the corporation. I don't know how to fight them. I can't pick up the phone and say, hey, what's your interest in candidate X? Because I don't know who they are. In this particular story, it wasn't the Koch brothers, mm-hmm. per se. It was the National Right to Work Committee, which we which didn't know. Which is an know. anti-union group. Anti-union group. Western Tradition Partnership, which then became American Tradition Partnership, is part of the shell game of trying to hide their identity and, and who funds them and what they do. Nobody really knew anything about them, uh, and, and nobody knew where their funding was coming from. But what they pretended to be about was jobs, the economy, uh, promoting resource extraction and that sort of thing. But really, the real agenda of the group that was funding all this activity was putting an end to labor unions. How'd you, how were they affecting elections in Montana at the time? We started seeing TV ads, radio ads, and really the, the, the thing that stands out are the flyers, these, really, the, these large format postcards with the candidate's name in, you know, black and white, high contrast, really sort of sinister looking on one side. Well, in the John Wayne Gacy example, John Ward uh, wants the killer clown to be let out of prison. And John Ward is an elected official in Montana. Was. Was, because five days, four days before election day, a bunch of these ads comparing him to John Wayne Gacy show up in his constituents' mailboxes. He didn't know they were coming. No one knew they were coming from. They're outrageous. What does John Wayne Gacy, as he says, have anything to do with? He's never been to Montana, as far as anyone knows, but they affect the election. And they show up at the last second. You don't have time to respond. You don't have time to get into any sort of counterargument. And even if you did get into a counterargument, you'd be spending the last couple of days of the election, you know, trying to say... I no longer beat my spouse sort right, of question. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Now, the original targets came after the 2007 legislative session when um, a handful of Republicans worked with then-Governor Brian Schweitzer, a Democrat, to pass a budget. They, they ended the legislative session that year without a budget, which is the, the one thing that they're required to do by the yeah. Montana Constitution. And when they left Helena without a budget, uh, a bunch of Republicans who were more— um, government-minded, I would say, than the anti-government libertarian Republicans said, look, our constituents sent us here to do a job. We have one job to do. That's to pass a budget to fund government. So they got together with the governor. They hashed out a deal kind of behind closed doors. And when they came back for the special session to, to pass the budget, enough Republicans voted with the whole block of Democrats to move the budget forward. Those Republicans 
were targets. Those that put the target on their backs. Yes. And in 2008, that's when these special interest groups, these dark money groups, came out and tried to knock them off. And didn't just try. They they were very successful. They were so how we can't you can't really tell by the comportment Republican and Democrat in the Senate and House, but it's the kind of Republican these groups want a very far right libertarian. Uh, Republicans who are anti-government. I right. mean, there, there's a quote in a story that I wrote recently after the last legislative session. Lou Jones, uh, Republican senator from Conrad. Conrad, thank you. <laughs> Lou Jones relayed a story about former House leader who said, when Lou went up to him after the session ended without a budget, and he said, "What? What's the plan? Okay, so we don't have a budget. We're going to have to come back for a special session. What's the plan?" And he said, "Chaos." And Lou said, "Well, what do you mean? What? What, what do you mean chaos?" And he said, chaos, that's the plan. If we, if we can show people that government doesn't work, that, that government is so broken it can't function, then, th- then we've won. Yeah. That was their goal. And I think, you know, we've seen that at the national level as well. And you see this time and again where these, these attacks, these dark money attacks happen during primary elections, usually in safe seats. Yeah. So as John is saying, it's not about having a Republican elected as opposed to a Democrat. It's about which type of Republicans get in. Right. And if there are a hundred members of the uh, of the House divided by almost a million Montanans, that means they represent 10,000 people each. And in a primary, how many people will vote in a Montana primary? Three, 4,000? So you don't have to change many minds. Oh, some of these elections, it's a few hundred votes. It's a few yeah. hundred a votes. A few hundred. Some You're of not these saying county- the margin of victory. You're saying the total, I'm saying the total number, number of, of votes. Total number, yeah. 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 And it t- can totally change the composition. Absolutely. Uh, and and by the way, I covered the South Dakota State House extensively, and I'm from New York, and I didn't expect this. I once asked a legislator, where's your office? And he looked at me and said, it's right here. And he pointed to the desk on the floor, and it lifted up, and there were some papers in there. But, you know, how much do these people make? Like 5000 bucks to serve in the legislature? It's, it's like 160 bucks a day. 160 bucks a day. Yeah, for Fantas- 90 days every yeah, every three-month session because they're supposed yeah. to go back to their farms. So these are citizens who want to do their job serving their constituents and they're up against, you know, extremely well-funded. Well, we don't know who they are. And that's what your documentary is trying to find out. People, the American public really cares about this issue. I mean, ever since 2010, when Citizens United was passed, there have been routine polls of the American public. And it's always like 75, 80 percent of the of Americans think that the system is just totally busted and we got to fix it. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we can show, look, you know, here's a state, ostensibly a really red state. Trump took Montana by 20 points. That even in a place like this, which people think of as being, you know, one of the states that's never going to get anywhere close to campaign finance reform, they passed almost the strongest laws in the country, really, at the time that they were passed, really second only to California. Do Democrats do utilize dark money too? Yep. And how does that show up? Different states? Like where would it show up uh, more in a state like Maryland or does it show up on the national level? Can you do the equivalent film where Democrats are buying legislators in some different state? You know, I think I think both sides do it. I don't want to create a false equivalency because I think there's a pretty vast imbalance in the amount of money that's spent, especially on the federal level. But one of the really important things to to realize is like, you know, why are they spending this money? Why not? I mean, you can spend unlimited money mm-hmm. through a super PAC and don't worry about, you know, creating 501c4s and having to do all these dodges. Why do people do it? It's because they want to keep their fingerprints off of this spending. 
And most of the time, that just has to do with running negative ads. Yeah. A lot of candidates. Because a super PAC can't coordinate. And by law, these these dark money organizations can't coordinate. When it's done in the dark and you don't know who's doing it, then you don't know who's talking to who. So you don't know if there's coordination. Oh, yeah, the candidates technically don't know who's supplying the dark money. Well, technically. 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 The candidate could meet just a concerned citizen, and this concerned citizen could lay out what they think their strategy is, and then they... The candidate can go and execute that strategy, and it turns out concerned citizen was donating tens of thousands of dollars without anyone knowing it. The other important thing about this is, like, most of the time when we talk about dark money, we're we're usually thinking about candidates who are running for office and getting elected, and that's how the dark money is playing. But think about this situation. It's not about a candidate election. It's about one issue. And they're trying to move elected officials. They're trying to change their votes because, in this case, they didn't want Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. So we're and we're seeing more and more of that, where it's not just about candidate elections. It's about in the middle of a six-year term, they just want to change some senator's vote. So a dark money group will launch a bunch of ads to you know call your senator and have them change their vote. Since the Supreme Court isn't going to change its stance on campaign finance, don't you just think that uh, the dark money entities and the politicians will find out a way to coordinate so that they don't violate the law or at least don't uh, get caught? So the coordination is always, according to Supreme Court jurisprudence, like that, that, that just cannot happen. In fact, in the Citizens United decision itself, there's an eight to one kind of sub decision within that where eight of the nine justices agreed that the only reason we can say all this stuff about spending unlimited money is because we are assuming it's going to be disclosed. We're mm-hmm. going to know where this money is coming from. So, yeah, you can spend unlimited amounts if we can you know, see where, what the influences are. That disclosure is not happening. So that's what we need to do. So in a lot of ways, it doesn't even matter if Citizens United is the law of the land or not. We need to focus on disclosing where there's money that's sloshing around the system, where that's coming from. And we have we have those laws and we can't enforce them. On the state level or on the federal level? It changes state to state. Yeah. Each state is, uh, is, is setting that themselves. On the federal level, yeah, those laws are on the books. It's all about getting the FEC to enforce it. But the Montana has the laws, right? Montana passed something in 2015 called the Disclose Act. Yeah, yeah. And, and is it working? Do we know where the dark money's coming from now? Well, we're not. We haven't seen anything quite like um, what we saw prior. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that is public awareness and the fact that the voters now are really suspicious of these these mailers. Yeah, but mailers seem very 2010 now that we've moved sure, to you're, social media. And Facebook's to blame for a lot of this, too, because they do a terrible job. So right now, Facebook is in the process of making it almost impossible for legitimate journalistic outlets to publish and boost their stories on this platform. So everybody's on Facebook. Yeah. Legitimate journalistic outlets are writing political stories. Facebook is flagging those as political advertising. They're letting the the dark money political ads slip through, but then they're tagging actual journalism and and tagging it as advertising. I mean, it's a mess. It's it's a total mess. Actually, some of our ads for dark money are getting flagged as political advertising. (laughs) (laughs) If I know anything about the documentary game, you'll have plenty, plenty of funding for marketing besides that. It's just so much, so many billboards and bus ads for a documentary. Oh, yeah. I know how these work. All over New York. This is such an interesting film, and if you think it's about Montana, you are wrong. Kim Reed is the director. John Adams, oh, let us call him the protagonist of the film, Dark Money. 
Where to see it? It's now playing at the IFC Center in New York. It's coming to Washington, D.C.'s E Street Cinema tomorrow. And it'll be in L.A. and San Francisco starting July 27th. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. And now the spiel. Papa John's is a pizza-like substance and a Peyton Manning jobs program that has fallen on tough times because of the statements of its eponym and founder, Pizza Rodriguez. Now, John Schnatter. I've learned how he pronounces the name Schnatter. Schnatter used the N-word in a conference call with his PR firm. That firm was originally hired to clean up the PR mess that Schnatter found himself in after opining about the NFL and the national anthem. So on News Radio 840 WHAS, Schnatter gave his only broadcast interview about what happened. He said that the PR firm encouraged him to use the N-word as a path to image rehab. This, this was his explanation. And Schnatter strongly objected to using the N-word in the only way he knew how, by using the N-word. And they pushed me. And it upset me. And I just said, listen, other people have used that that word. I don't and will not use that word. And people of Papa John's don't use that. And that was the, that was the comment. Um, but they, they actually wanted to get into that, that vocabulary. Uh, and, and I said, absolutely not. It later came out that Schnatter's story was that the PR agency had suggested using Kanye West as a spokesman. And Papa John said, no, sir. Kanye West uses the N-word, and we will not do that here. He went on to say that Colonel Sanders called black people. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't say the mama mia. He just used the N-word. So yes, he was quoting Colonel Sanders or misquoting Colonel Sanders, according to descendants of Colonel Sanders. But Schnatter, who had been in trouble for years, was out. Schnatter's a vocal Trump donor. He blasted the NFL for allowing its players to kneel during the anthem. And then he blasted the anthem protest themselves for causing a slump in his pizza sales. He had previously been critical of Obamacare. And the alt-right even tried to embrace Papa John's as their official pizza when everyone knows it's really Sal's who doesn't put brothers up on the wall. But here is my question as regards Papa John, his ouster, his comeuppance. Would you, would I, would we all feel any differently about this whole story if the pizza were good? If the pizza were really good? It's really easy to have the right opinion on the loathsome Papa John to feel that in your gut if your gut is also loathing the pizza. But what if your gut craved the pizza? There is a good case study for this, Chick-fil-A. The progressive line on Chick-fil-A owned by anti-gay evangelicals, goes something like this. Yes, the politics are bad, but damn, the chicken is delicious. I mean, I get it. Chick-fil-A sandwiches, they're delicious. But are you kidding me? <laughs> Tighten up your game. MSNBC's Stephanie Rule, and I do hear that sentiment a lot. A certain version could even be heard on Fox & Friends with Steve Ducey interviewing Chick-fil-A customers. Cut. I come to Chick-fil-A for the chicken biscuits. I mean... You don't come for the politics. No, I, don't, I just want the chick, chicken biscuits and then that's it. 
Chick-fil-A has toned down its anti-gay funding in recent years, though it still gives hundreds of thousands to Christian groups which don't actively fight against gay marriage, but if you look at their mission statements, do oppose gay marriage on religious grounds. One of these is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, another is a home for abused youth. Maybe this not actively going against gay marriage. Maybe that gives progressive people cover to tell themselves that they are not engaging in a political act when they eat chicken on a biscuit. But I suspect the driving force for saying, yes, I'm pro-gay marriage, but also I'm eating this chicken, is the quality of the offering. Just like, I wonder if Lyft weren't a viable alternative, how many people would have deleted Uber from their phone when the Travis Kalanick accusations were first aired? In recent days, John Schnatter resigned. Papa John's stock spiked by 10%. And today in the Wall Street Journal, it was reported that Wendy's had been in talks to acquire Papa John's, though those talks seem to have cooled. And I did take a certain pleasure in this quote from that Wall Street Journal story. Same store sales at Papa John's have been falling for several quarters. Well, good, I said to myself. My fellow Americans are either acquiring taste or conscience. But no, here is the next part of that sentence. Been falling for several quarters as consumers have switched to less expensive rivals. America, like a profitable but unexceptional processed food company. It is, if nothing else, consistent. As always, thanks to you, our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not a member, learn more at slate.com slash just plus, just $35 for your first year, and you'll get ad-free versions of this and other Slate podcasts. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Those gentlemen were almost named Kravas Bienname and Melpamine Schrader, Greek muse of dance and song. You know him as Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, but he was born podcast Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Steve's. The gist, we are pleased to announce our latest edition, Wolverine Sriracha Dippin' Dots Pesca, a name that will stand the test of time. Umpru de and thanks for listening. <laughs>